The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Holiness versus Perfectionism Chalcedon Position Paper, number 61 A biblical incident rarely preached on is 2 Kings 5, 18-19. The Syrian general Naaman, healed of his leprosy by the prophet Elisha, has made a profession of faith. He has a problem, however. The Syrian king, in his infirmity, required a man to lean on as he goes to worship in the temple of Rimon. Naaman is that trusted man. For a general who could easily seize the throne, to be so trusted indicates how highly Naaman was regarded. But Naaman is troubled. When the king bows to his God, Naaman must help him to do so and himself bow in the process. Will the Lord pardon Naaman for this? Elisha's answer is affirmative. Quote, Go in peace. Unquote. Naaman was not summoned to a life of perfection, but of holiness, and there is a difference. Naaman was not compromising his faith, but performing a minor duty in a major career. The idea of perfection is in essence a pagan doctrine. The word perfect, as it appears in scripture, has a different meaning than in pagan cultures. Several Greek words are used in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.48, quote, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect, unquote. The word is, quote, teleos, unquote. Matured, reaching its appointed goal, completed. 
Other words translated as, quote, perfect, unquote, have related meanings. For us to be perfect in the biblical sense means to mature in our calling, to do God's will for our lives and to serve Him with all our heart, mind, and being. Perfection in this sense is a process. The preamble to the U.S. Constitution uses, quote, perfect, unquote, in this theological sense and thus speaks of forming, quote, a more perfect union, unquote. In the modern sense, this is absurd. What can be more perfect than perfect? Perfection in the non-biblical sense has long been a goal in various pagan religions. It has been essentially linked to the idea of autonomous man. To use Neoplatonic terms, man must incarnate in himself the principle of being and attain perfection. This is, in essence, a solitary quest because to attain true spirituality or intellectuality, to be pure mind or pure spirit, one must divorce oneself from the material world and from other people. People are a troublesome burden, endlessly concerned with their trifles and impediment to the realization of the principle in one's being. This pagan concept of perfection separated the person from the world and from society. It created hermits, monks, and detached people. In one pagan faith after another, the true goal of life is detachment, a world and life negation. Eastern religions in particular have been dedicated to this goal of detachment, but its influence has been powerful in the West also. Most of the desert hermits of the early church, many monks, and much popular piety, Catholic and Protestant, have been dedicated to this ideal. In the 14th century, the monks of Athos believed that fasting plus concentration could enable them to realize the uncreated essence of God. The concentration came from naval watching. When Barlaam opposed the, quote, naval sold ones, unquote, a synod was called to condemn him. The way of perfection is the solitary way. It is often associated with mysticism. In its forms within the church, its goal is the vision of God, or, in other forms, pietism, the perfection of one's personal piety. It is, in any case, an autonomous exercise, not a social one. In relation to the world, it seeks escape and anonymity. Perfectionism and self-absorption go hand in hand. The doctrine of holiness is radically different. When our Lord summons us to be, quote, perfect, unquote, or mature, an example to grow in terms of our God-appointed end, He is summoning us to serve God with all our being and to be holy unto Him. Quote, You shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine, unquote. Leviticus twenty twenty six, Holiness is always unto the Lord. Moreover, as Revelation 15, 4, in the great, quote, Song of Moses, the servant of God in the Song of the Lamb, unquote, declares, quote, Thou only art holy, unquote. God alone is holy. We are holy to the degree that we separate and dedicate ourselves to Him, and to his kingdom. To abide in him means to bring forth fruit, John fifteen two. To love God means to keep his commandments, John fifteen 
10, and 14. Our goal thus is to do the will of our Father, to serve Him with all our heart, mind, and being, to love God and our neighbor. The Reformation, and especially the Puritans, defined this work of holiness as the kingdom of God, as a ministry in Christ's name, the goal being, quote, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever, unquote. Revelation 11:15. This goal was one present from the earliest days of the church and strong in many medieval movements, although the Neoplatonic perfectionism gained an ascendancy. The rise of pietism again subverted this priority of holiness in the biblical sense. Perfectionism took over. With the rise of perfectionism, impracticality has often been associated with perfection and a pseudo-holiness. Modernism, even more than Catholic and Protestant orthodoxies, has been very prone to perfectionism, and it has done much damage the world over. Pacifism is one form of this perfectionism. Hostility to armament in any form is another. In one seminary, it was enough to dismiss from consideration as a worthy Christian a prominent churchman for the professor to say, quote, He has a collection of guns and loves to hunt. Unquote. The prevalence of perfectionism in the Western world has been part and parcel of incredibly stupid foreign and domestic policies. It means moving in terms of assumptions which are unrelated to reality, because the ideal must be assumed in order to make it real. Perfectionism sees man as the creator and the world as his will and idea. Modern education is perfectionist. It teaches students that the world can be remade if we believe men are naturally good and peace-loving, and that if only we treat them so, they will be as hoped for. As one prominent, quote, theologian, unquote, believes, if we surrender to the Soviet Union and greet their troops with smiling faces, love will triumph. Churchmen equate their, quote, good intentions, unquote, with perfection. To end poverty is good. Therefore, to call for the redistribution of wealth means to favor a godly society and a perfect solution to the problem of poverty. The solution to economic and other problems is seen as political. In example, the issuing of political fiats, which will supposedly change the world. Perfectionism believes in cheap remedies. The great perfectionist, Satan, had a simple solution. God was requiring men to learn the discipline of work, science, and dominion in the Garden of Eden as the first step towards exercising dominion over all of the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28. This was seen as a painfully slow process which would require centuries and much effort. How much simpler it would be if man would, like God, issue a fiat word, determine good and evil for himself, and be the creator of his own world. Genesis 3, 1-5. God's way required holiness, a total dedication and obedience to God's law word, and the slow process of maturation, the biblical meaning of perfection. The tempter offered a simpler route, perfection, not holiness, not obedience to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4, 
but being one's own God in decreeing the perfect world. So modern politics was born. Perfectionism also trusts in religious or devotional exercises as the way to power with God. Isaiah speaks very bluntly, as do other prophets, about the evil this can be, saying that God declares, quote, Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, and thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday, and the Lord shall guide thee continually. Unquote. Isaiah 58, 5-11 What the Lord requires of us is holiness, but holiness is not gained by saying, Go to now, I shall be a saint. Rather, holiness comes as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. Matthew six thirty-three. We do not become holy by seeking holiness in and of itself. The Lord is the Holy One, and we are holy if we do his will. Christ is holy because he is the obedient son. Quote, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Unquote. John six thirty-eight. Twice in Hebrews we are told of our Lord that he is avowed and ordained purpose was this, quote, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, unquote. Hebrews 10, 7 and 9. This must be our purpose too as members of his new humanity. We are not saved to retire to our own devices, but to serve, glorify, and enjoy God forever. We are summoned to be holy, which means to love, serve, and obey the Lord with all our heart, mind, and being, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Holiness is too often seen as mere negation. As one man said recently, echoing an old sentence, he had lived for years on the premise that he was a Christian because, quote, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do, unquote. Holiness is not merely nor essentially negation. It requires separation, but it is false to see it merely as separation from sin. Our Lord describes false separation tellingly. A man rid himself of an unclean spirit and cleansed his life of many things, but his zeal for perfection and a negative holiness left the, quote, house, unquote, merely, quote, empty, swept, and garnished, unquote. As a result, 
Quote, the unclean spirit returned with seven other spirits more wicked than himself, unquote. With the result that, quote, the last state of that man is worse than the first, unquote. Matthew 12, 43-45 This parable by our Lord explains why some supposedly converted people are so great a problem. True holiness is a dedication to the Lord's service with the totality of our being. It is not a concern with our perfection, but a concern for the Lord's work. As David says, quote, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, unquote. Psalm 69, 9 a sentence finding total expression in our Lord, John two seventeen. David's sins were very real and were judged by God, but David's zeal for the Lord's work was honored and blessed by God because David sought God's kingdom and glory. Remember Naaman and Elisha's word? What would some of our modern perfectionists with their false holiness have said to Naaman? Or to Abraham, Solomon, Peter, and many another saint richly blessed by God. There is much talk today about holiness, but it is a warped and perfectionist doctrine which is too often stressed. The result is negation, and instead of powerful men of God, it is mousy churchmen who are the results of such teachings. The church must be a training camp and barracks room, sending soldiers of Christ into the world, each in his or her own sphere to exercise dominion in the name of the Lord. A good army is not trained for exhilaration and parade, but for action. Our God, who is alone holy in and of himself, is a God of action and power. Our holiness comes in working in obedience and faithfulness to his law word. April 1985 Loyalties Chalcedon Position Paper Number 62 over the years, I have repeatedly seen and commented very often about the evil of self-pity. Self-pity is the most deadly spiritual cancer a man can inflict upon himself. With self-pity, we wall ourselves off from the world and joy. We give a self-centered meaning to all events, and we see life not as a gift and grace from God, 1 Peter 3, 7, but as a conspiracy against us. We then view life and politics not as a responsibility, but as a vast plot. That men conspire is true, and Psalms 2 tells us that the basic conspiracy of history is against God and His law. We are also told by all of Scripture that faithfulness to the Lord makes us victorious in history against all enemies and powers. Deuteronomy 28 Men, however, find it easier to blame others than to assume responsibility. Hence the radical absorption of many in documenting all the evils perpetrated by one group or another. Such documentation changes nothing. Men are not saved by knowing their enemies, but by knowing and being strong in the Lord. We can best see where our enemies are and who they are when we are most in Christ. A great deal of our bigotry comes from a concentration on the wrongs we have suffered rather than on the wrongs we inflict on other people. No lying is involved, only an emphasis on one aspect of our lives. To illustrate and to limit the illustrations to the American experience, ever since I was young, I have had Jewish friends tell me of the bitter persecutions they endured, being called, quote, Christ killers, unquote, quote, kikes, unquote, and more, 
being discriminated against in various ways, and so on. All of this is clearly true. Again, I have heard Catholic friends express their hurt and indignation at having their church called, quote, the Whore of Babylon, unquote, at being treated as evil people because of their faith, abused for their religious practices, and so on. Some of the indignities suffered are painful to hear about. I have no doubt as to their truth. Furthermore, many Protestants can tell like stories all true. One girl told me of her painful experience in being the only Protestant in a business establishment with over a dozen girls, all the rest Catholic, with a Jewish boss. Only her unquestionable excellence kept her out in front. Every kind of effort was made to push errors on to her. She was the target of ugly remarks about her faith and so on and on. Only the pay and her need to work kept her going. Many, many more such tales can be told, all true. But this is only one side of the story. More than one Catholic, Protestant, and atheist has told me of the problems of living in an old-fashioned Jewish neighborhood and walking as a child down the street and having the Jewish old folks on their stoops spitting at them of falling and hurting oneself badly and everyone laughing with delight and so on. Again, a Jewish boy in any non-Jewish neighborhood has suffered torment at the hands of Catholic, Protestant, and atheist boys in the neighborhood. I've heard more than a few stories of the cruel humor, the nasty pranks, and the like, all too routine in such cases. Each has tried to outdo the other in unkindness. Need I say more? There is not a group in society which has not suffered some indignities and also inflicted indignities on others. Can you convince any group of their sins? They love to major in the sins of others. This holds true in marriage. Quote, men, unquote. I heard a woman snort indignantly once. Quote, I could tell you a lot about them. The, the blank, unquote. I am sure she could have, and I am sure that men could have told me a lot more about her. In marriage, men and women too often have the bad habit of concentrating on their spouse's sins and shortcomings, not their own, and feeling a great deal of self-pity. One wife who neglected her most routine responsibilities as a wife, but complained endlessly about her husband became venomously angry when I asked her about her responsibilities. I have seen men bitterly angry because their wife has a problem. The men have assumed that only they have a right to needs and wants. We all tend to forget that the one person we can change is ourselves, and this is our God-required duty. Everyone, however, wants to reform others, especially their enemies. We forget that the greatest menace to community comes from this kind of Phariseeism. It is the essence of Phariseeism to see oneself as superior and others as the problem people of the world. We miss the whole point of our Lord's indictment of the Pharisees if we forget that, to a very real degree, they were the best people of their day and they knew it. Their attitude towards others reflected this. In his biting attack on the Pharisees, our Lord portrays one boasting even to God of his superiority. Quote, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, 
adulterers, or even as this publican, unquote. Luke 18.11 What the Pharisee did was to separate himself from other men in terms of his ostensibly superior religious stand. Our Lord tells us that the publican was justified before God, not the Pharisee. Luke 18.14 Let us remember, too, that our Lord declares that the summation of God's law is in two commandments. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Unquote. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven and thirty-nine. Not humanistic or social criteria, but the love of God must govern all our being. When we love God truly, then we can also love our neighbor as ourselves. Two things are clear in this latter commandment. First, it presupposes that we love ourselves. We can only respect ourselves and have a healthy self-love when we know that we are created in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus Christ. Men who cannot love themselves cannot love others. Much of the failure of various groups, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, and others, to have the godly respect for groups or persons outside their fellowship that they should is due to a lack of a biblical view of themselves under God. God's repeated test of the integrity of a people's faith is their care for widows, orphans, and strangers, for those who are outside their normal realm of association. This is the second aspect of this commandment. To love our neighbor as ourselves is to show as great a concern for their welfare, rights, and reputation as for our own. To love our neighbor as ourselves means to respect our neighbor's marriage and its sanctity. Quote, thou shalt not commit adultery, unquote. His life, quote, thou shalt not kill, unquote. His property, quote, thou shalt not steal, unquote. His reputation, quote, thou shalt not bear false witness, unquote. And to do this in word, thought, and deed, Quote, thou shalt not covet, unquote. What this means is very clear. Beyond a very limited sphere, judgment is the province of God. A godless state will assume more and more of the prerogatives of God and assume powers of judgment over all of life. Because we are not God, for us the decisive power in society must be the regenerating power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Not revolution, but regeneration. Not coercion, but conversion is our way of changing the world and furthering the kingdom of God. This is the heart of Christian reconstruction. The heart of biblical law is that it makes us the basic government of society in and through our personal and family life, through our vocations, churches, and schools. In biblical law, civil government is a very limited and minor sphere of rule and power. No society can be healthy if the people are not strong in their faith. A strong state means a weak people. The various civil governments of the world are all strong and overbearing in their power because the peoples are weak in the faith. Status power grows to fill a vacuum in government created by the irresponsibility of the people. When men say of their Lord, quote, we will not have this man to reign over us, unquote. 
Luke 19.14, they were inviting anarchy. The book of Judges described such a time. Men had rejected God as their king and because, quote, in those days there was no king in Israel, unquote. God having been denied, quote, every man did that which was right in his own eyes, unquote. Judges 21.25 When men do that which is right in their own eyes, when they deny Christ our king and his law word, then their word and their group becomes the source of determination for them. Men then act humanistically and are determined by their group, not the Lord. Our governing allegiance must be to Jesus Christ and his reign, not to our Catholic or Protestant churches. Our faith can rarely surpass our allegiance. If our allegiance is Presbyterian, Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, or what have you, we are small men indeed, and our, quote, faith, unquote, a warped one at best. Churches like persons must be instruments in the hand of God, not the centers of our lives. We can and must respect the instruments, but we warp the faith if we are not God-centered. The story is told of a famous evangelist of almost a century ago who encountered a drunkard who blubbered gratefully that he owed his conversion to him. The evangelist responded, quote, I must have converted you because obviously the Lord didn't. Unquote. If our allegiance is to anything short of the triune God and his word, our loyalties will be humanistically oriented. We will be overly governed by groups and institutions, however good and insufficiently governed by God the Lord. A prominent American political leader, a man of unique independence, once told me that peer pressure governs most politicians. Before their election, they are motivated by what they and their constituency want. After their election, the peer pressure of their new group now governs them and they are less responsive to the demands of their electorate. Peer pressure is a most potent force in the modern world because religious faith is by contrast weak and fragile. Indeed, in one church college, group dynamics are taught as an important and worthy source of social strength. This goes hand in hand with a major shift in man's outlook which came progressively into force with the Enlightenment. The domain belonging to religion and the church was seen as the inner world, the spiritual life of man. The domain of reason and the state was held to be the material sphere. There is no warrant in scripture for any such division. All things were made by God the Lord and all things are subject to his law word and government. His church must declare God's word and its relevance to all the world, the state no less than any other sphere. For the church to be silent in any sphere or to limit the scope of God's government, law, and rule is to sin and to deny to that degree its Lord. We are not therefore to be governed by our parochial loyalties, nor by group dynamics, nor by peer pressure. All our churches, institutions, groups, races, nationalities, and allegiances must be subject to the prior government of the triune God in his law word. Anything short of that is idolatry. The fundamental declaration of God's law is this, quote, 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unquote. Exodus 20, 3. We must remember that even very good things can be turned into idols and false gods. For many, their church is an idol, or their family, their children, their race, nationality, or group. However good these things may be, they can become an often or idols when we give them priority over the love of God and in that love of God, our love of our neighbor. A limited good, if given too high a place in our lives, can be as destruction or more than an open and obvious evil. Remember, such a perspective led men into crucifying Christ. May 1985 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.